But if you don't mind, would you stand with me as we begin reading Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. We're going to look at the, the first 20 verses, and I've entitled this message, Are We Really That Bad? For those of you who can't stay through the whole message, the answer is yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. <clears throat> but he begins in verse 1 by saying, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision, which was the external evidence in that time of being a Jew. He says, much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. And what if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly... What shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing His wrath on us? I am using a human argument. Certainly not, he answers. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases His glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, and he begins to quote a series of Old Testament passages, there is no one righteous, no, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes." Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced, and the whole world held accountable to God, and therefore no one will be declared righteous in His sight, that is God's sight, by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Let's begin with prayer. Father, we come with great pleasure to your word this morning that even though sometimes it challenges our understanding, we know, Lord, that there is an infectious nature to your truth that once it touches us, it begins to work through us, and in time, we begin to touch and infect the lives of others with that truth. So, God, we just pray that you just expand our comprehension and, and, and really heighten our embrace of your truth into our lives. That, Lord, we would be people who would love it for its truthfulness and not just simply when it makes us feel good, but rather we would grasp its reality and stand upon it. We pray for this grace, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I, I hate to be so negative, especially on Valentine's Day, but uh, we live in a world that's more defined by lovelessness and deception than by truth and love. 
I mean, it's easy to miss that fact because deception likes to disguise itself. Uh, if we take, for example, the very first recorded lie in the history of humankind when Satan comes to Eve and tells her that if she eats of the forbidden fruit, she won't die. I mean, that was an out-and-out -out lie as proved by the simple fact that she did, in fact, die. But instead, he told her that really God was withholding good things from her, that she would, was missing out on the ability to know the difference between good and evil because up to that point she had not actually participated in something that God defined as being evil, which would be disobeying His clear command. <clears throat> Rather, He told her, if you eat of it, you will become like God which was an attractive thing to her. In fact, when we think about it, it really was ultimately the plan of God that man would be redeemed as we are in Christ, and one day we shall be like Him, Scripture says, because we will see Him as He is. So it wasn't like it was completely untrue. It just wasn't completely true. What He didn't tell her, the, the important part, was that she would possess neither the power to be consistently good or the ability to consistently resist the evil that there is there in the world. A, a, a dynamic and dilemma of life that everyone in this room, if we're honest, knows that we experience. That we're not as good as we would like to be or, or like to convince others that we are, nor are we able to resist the evil to the extent that we wish we were able to as well. Basically, the dirty little secret about deception is that it's rarely a complete lie. It prefers, as I said, to disguise itself in the form of half-truths that allow us to draw our own spurious conclusions based upon partial information or limited perspective or even misinformation. And there's probably no place where that deceptiveness appears more commonly in our day-to-day -day life than in what we call the world of advertising. Take, for example, one of my favorite foods uh, uh, is known by the phrase, snap, crackle, pop. I don't want to endorse the product. But the FCC made, or FA, FDA made them withdraw this, or FTC made them take away this commercial some years ago because... They said that if you eat these crispy treats, that it will improve your child's immune system, that it's full of antioxidants and nutrients and so forth and so on, as if they're really kind of convincing you that it's actually good for you. Why don't we just call candy what it is? You know, I mean, it really isn't, isn't good for you. And, and if you're really that concerned about getting your vitamins, then take a pill. But you don't have to spend the money. But nonetheless, they basically said, this is dishonest. Well, another one that I find really good is when you go to get fast foods, it rarely looked, looks like what you saw in the commercial. Um, it's, sometimes I wonder in, before they brought it out to the window if they didn't sit on it or something, you know, because <laughs> somehow it doesn't seem to have the same vibrancy. What, what happened to all that extra pickles and onions and mayo that got squeezed out of it? Or here's one, again, that the FTC made them pull, um, cheat death by drinking this palm pomegranate juice. Um, they said, you know, it's really, really kind of promising something 
far and beyond what it actually will do. Now, it may be very healthy to drink pomegranate juice. Actually, I believe it is, and I do it whenever I can, but I don't think I'm going to cheat death. I know that the most deadly thing that happened to me was to be born. It predisposed me to this eventuality called death, so I, I, and, and I'm not even quite sure what cheating death means. <laughs> Are we in a card game here? I, I, don't, I don't even know how that works. But there's a worst kind of deception out there. The worst is really self-deception, the, the lies that we tell ourselves, which are necessary if we're going to be effective in lying to others. My father, who in the latter part of his life became a successful businessman, said that the key to selling, he said, is you have to believe in your product. If you don't believe in it, then you can't sell it. And so he said, sometimes you just have to lie to yourself to the point where you actually believe it's a good deal. Now, that's probably why he was so convincing, because he could do it with such a convincing way. But the simple fact is that there are all sorts of examples of people who can sell stuff that they themselves know isn't what they're promising. I mean, take, for example, the maybe the most extreme example, Bernie Madoff. Uh, Bernie Madoff made off with $65 billion that wasn't his. He's the most successful, if you want to put it this way, most successful con artist, Ponzi scheme in the history of the world. Nobody can top him. This guy was three times the chairman of the NASDAQ. I mean, that's how, how respected he was worldwide. He never made a single trade he never invested anybody's money. It was all up to, uh, on a very complex paper trail. And, I, and after he finally was, was outed in 2008 when the market collapsed, so did Bernie's empire because suddenly people came scrambling for their money and there was no money. It, he had spent it all. Basically, <clears throat> um, his sons turned him in. When they found out, they were working for him and they discovered what he had done. And after he was arrested and convicted and put in prison, he made the interesting statement. He says, I'm not the kind of person I'm being portrayed. I'm a good person. Now, I guess that's kind of like what your definition of is is or something like that. I mean, how do you define what a good person is? And he simply said, you know, I was just taking care of my family. I don't care about all those other people. And some of those other people were certainly rich people who had money to invent. Some of them were just, most of them were ordinary people like you and me. Uh, many of them were charities. In fact, our own Shriner Hospital almost went under because they lost $12 million that had been invested with Bernie Madoff, monies that they didn't even know had been invested by their security agents in his Ponzi scheme. So many people were hurt. There was devastation. People were bankrupted. And, you know, it's basically, um, he was a thief, but never saw himself as a thief. And, and probably maybe the most egregious example that I could think of is Adolf Eichmann, uh, the genocidal mass murderer. Here was the guy who was the architect of what was called the, by the Nazis, the final solution. And when he was finally apprehended by the Israeli Mossad in, in South America, and he was really kind of secreted back to Israel where he was put on trial for his crimes, um, he first said, well, I was just simply following orders. Now, this is a guy who ran everything. <laughs> so it's hard to say you're following orders when you're actually the guy giving the orders. But he tried that, and that didn't stand up well. And so basically... He later boasts that he says, one day you will thank me 
for ridding the world of this vermin of the Jews. I mean, there was absolutely no remorse. He actually took pride. He says, I will die with a smile on my face, knowing I have accomplished such good for the world. <clears throat> now, we prefer to classify such men as sociopaths, psychopaths, uh, maniacs. Uh, we want to give them some kind of title that separates them from the rest of the herd. But the sad thing is that they, there's nothing insane about these individuals. They're perfectly sane. They lived and went about their lives in the same way they went about their crimes, almost in a, a daily business-like manner, very purposeful, very directed. They didn't really, and in some ways still don't look much different than the rest of us. And that's what frightens us. It's that similarity to us that... Uh, they're so much like the rest of humanity. They were good fathers and, for the most part, loving husbands and nice neighbors and enjoyed good music. We, they were considered before they were outed for their crimes to be good, upstanding people. You would sit down in a cafe with a, a nice latte and you would have a beautiful conversation, an intelligent conversation they would speak of high morals and right standards and doing right by others and honoring God and all these kinds of things. And yet, the reality is their words were such a contradiction to their actual actions that eventually the facade had to collapse. But you see, in a similar way, the, the religious people that Paul is addressing here in Romans chapter 2 and again in chapter 3 as it's a continuing thought we're equally blind to their own sinfulness. You see, what, by comparing themselves to the Gentile world around them, they really did look pretty good. I mean, they looked moral, they looked holy, they lived clean lives, they, they weren't like what was going out on the streets and in the marketplace of the Greek and the Roman cities around them. They, they went to the synagogue. They said the appropriate prayers. They sang the appropriate songs. They sat in the appropriate pews on the appropriate day. They took a great deal of pride and even solace in both the fact that they were circumcised and they were the keepers of God's scriptures, of God's word, of God's oracles, of his revelation of truth. They recognized that they were a very highly privileged people. They were known as God's chosen people. And after all, as Paul said, who else did God entrust with the very words of God? But see, like so many, they mistakenly assumed that these privileges gave them a privileged position with God, as if he liked them better than he did other people. And how I wish I could say that that attitude is limited to a group of first century Jews, but it's something that pretty is characteristic of religious people of all stripes around the world. There's this idea that somehow by becoming part of this organization or this movement or this theology or philosophy that we're kind of a cut above. And it's not just simply the religious world, it's also the philosophical world, it's the ideological world, so that the communist has the same tendency. In other words, what we're talking about is an inherent human dynamic that tends to wrap itself around something 
or wrap a flag of one kind or another around itself and then put itself up as being better than everybody else who isn't wrapped in the same packaging. This is what we do. Yet upon closer examination, as we saw back in chapter 2, Paul notes that they were not that much better than the people that they were condescending and criticizing. Maybe their sins were not as overt or as extreme or self-damaging, clearly, or even regularly expressed. But Paul challenged them, their smug religious self-confidence, by saying to them in chapter 2, verse 21, he says, you preach against stealing, but do you steal? You commit, you, do you commit adultery? Do you abhor idols, but do you rob idols' temples? Do you dishonor God by breaking the law? And then he says, as it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. In other words, Paul turns to these same men and he says, you sit there and put yourself above these world of the unbeliever who don't have the Word of God, and yet they actually despise your God because there's such a gap between what you say about Him and who you actually are. Now, there are really two <clears throat> ways to deal with that. One is to simply live so perfectly consistent what you believe to be true that nobody can find any fault with you. Perfect righteousness. How's that working for you? <laughs> What's the other alternative? Honesty. I'm a sinner saved by grace. Now, I've heard that phrase used as an excuse for bad behavior. <laughs> Please don't get me wrong. I mean, there's a lot of people who just, you know, walk straight into badness and then say, well, just a sinner saved by grace. <laughs> That's just as despised by the non-Christian as the other side of the issue, but, or other response. But it's that simple honesty. You see, what the problem was, Paul was saying, is that these people had reveled in their privilege but neglected its responsibility. And what was that responsibility? They were called by God to be a light to the Gentile. Let me, let me clarify that a little bit. They were called to hold the flashlight to that illuminated the doctrine, but not to begin to think that they were actually the flashlight. They're just the holders of it. And that's the best that you and I can do. I mean, we can hold that light, and, and we need to use it as a, as a reference point of self-revelation and self-reflection, that I want to shine it on myself as much as I want to shine it to the world out there. But the reality is that we're saying, he, we have found the light, and we are inviting you to come to the light just as we have come to the light, because you have no light, and once we had no light, but now light has come into our midst. I don't know if you've ever been in the woods late at night, and it's pitch dark, and there's no moon, and clouded up over the skies, and you see a light in the distance. Are you not attracted to it? I remember once when I was camping out in the desert and down in Arizona, and uh, I remember the warning was given, if you see a light, don't decide to take a walk to it. It's probably 20 miles away. <laughs> But there was something very attractive about that light, is there not? You see it and you just think, I want to be close to that. Well, God says, you know, I am the light, Amen. not you. I am the light. You are the light keeper. 
And that light shines out in the world. And the light keeper of the lighthouse may never know how many ships are saved, how many lives are rescued. But one thing we know that many are just by the virtue that he keeps the light bright and shining. This is why Paul turns his discussion <clears throat> to this issue of, of their responsibility and not simply just focus on their privilege. When he says in verse 9, what then shall we conclude? Are we better? And is you know, oftentimes in, in New Testament Greek, when it asks a question, it's, we call it a rhetorical question, the answer almost always is no. I mean, obviously we're not. We're not better than anybody. And I think that's an important point to just focus on for a moment, if you'd allow me, because I think there is a tendency to look at certain peoples and feel like we are better to think of ourselves, and we see somebody doing something that we can't imagine ourselves doing, and, and we feel like, well, that proves that I'm better. It's a subconscious thing, but it kind of proves to me, well, I'm, at least I'm not like him. I'm not like her. I often say, have warned myself, never say, I will never, because every never I've ever done has become forever and ever. It's, it's like somehow it's, it's like you're daring God. I remember sitting in, the, in my breakfast room, which is three walls of, of glass, looking out at Pikes Peak in, in Colorado Springs on a sunny day and saying, there are some paces I will never live as I regaled in the beauty of the setting I'll never live in New York City, and I'll never live in Los Angeles. Six months later, I was living in Bellflower, California. <laughs> you know where that is? You don't know where Bellflower, you know where Compton is, you know where Watts is. That was, and our house was right up against the freeway, <laughs> literally right over our heads. It was the worst. <laughs> it was worse than being in that Chilean mine. Uh, it was the worst. And I thought, I'll never dare God ever again. <laughs> Are we better? No. Not at all, Paul says. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. And then in verse 10, he goes on, he says, there is no one righteous. At least he means it in the absolute sense. He says, not, not even one, there is no one who understands, not really completely, it doesn't mean that we have no understanding, but we don't really grasp it all. There's no one who seeks God at least all of the time. That all of us have turned away. They've all become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. At least, in fact, Jesus said the same thing. He says, why do you call me good? For there's only one who's good, and that is God. He was trying to get them to draw a theological conclusion, but... but it's a simple fact. That's why when people say, how are you doing? I tend not to say good. I say well <laughs> or bad, but not good. He says their throats are open graves. You ever wonder about that, how much deadness comes out of our conversation? Their tongues practice deceit. I mean, as much as we'd like to say, well, I always tell the truth, I don't. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Sounds like politicians. <laughs> their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is, and here's really a summary reason why. Because there's no fear of God before their eyes. 
You see, the purpose of the Scriptures was not to flatter them, but to flatten them. And that might say, sound terrible, but as Oswald Chambers once said, you never stand more tall than when you're flat on your face at the foot of the cross. Amen. That that idea that the Scriptures isn't there simply to make me feel good about myself and say, I'm not as bad as I thought I was, but to realize that suddenly I'm so much more worse than I ever imagined. I am so much farther from God than I ever dreamed. And that only is bearable when I realize, but He loves me so much more than I ever imagined as well. And His cross was effective beyond anything that I can imagine, but that doesn't make me better. In fact, that's why He said in verse 19, He said, under the law, every mouth will be silenced and the whole world will be held accountable to God." This is a concept that the theologians refer to as the total depravity of mankind. That's a strong phrase, total depravity. You know, it's one thing to say you are a depraved human being. Add to it the adjective, you are a totally depraved human being, and it doesn't leave much room to flatter yourself. But you see, the term total depravity doesn't mean what we often think. It doesn't mean that we're all as bad as we can possibly be, or that we're incapable of doing good or being good, at least in a relatively sen relative sense. What it does mean is that we are utterly and completely incapable of taking one step toward God without His miraculous grace opening and leading us in that way. Later on, Paul would say, do you, says back in chapter 2, do you not realize it's the goodness of God that leads you into repentance? It's God's goodness that draws you to Him, to His Son. And most importantly, the greatest sin is thinking that we can approach God through our own strength, our own goodness. No amount of sacrifice or self-discipline or self-denial or service or surrender will place you one centimeter closer to God or even one iota closer to His favor and His blessing and grace. And yet I find that you and I often fall into that thought pattern where the idea that something bad has happened because I overlooked or failed to do X, Y, Z, or if I do A, B, C, that this good will come into my life. And we begin to see God as being this, this heavenly vending machine that we just need to plunk the right currency in the right amount and then pull the lever and then the goodies will come flowing out. And when we have done all that and we don't get the payoff, we feel like God has been unfair or we've been cheated. And in fact, God resists that on all levels. Let me ask you a personal question. Have you ever failed God in a way that you knew you had failed God and suddenly a blessing came into your life? And you became confused saying, wait a minute, God. <clears throat> I just said, thought, and did something that I know was sinful, willful disobedience, and I turn around, and now this kindness has been poured upon me. This grace has been shown to me. What's the thought? I don't deserve this. Exactly. You don't. Exactly. You don't deserve any of the mercies that God shows to you. 
Why is that the case? Well, picture an eyedropper, a little eyedropper, and take it and just compress the stopper on top and then suck out a few drops of pure sewage, pure raw sewage. Take a gallon of water and drop that sewage into the water and shake it up real good and drink it. Oh, you don't want to? <laughs> What's the problem? <laughs> because you may not be able to see it. You may not even be able to taste it. But you know it's polluted. And that's what sin does. It doesn't take a lot of sin. Oh, I know there's some people that they're actually so polluted by sin that it's changed the color of the fluid. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's dark and it's, it's, it's scary and it's got stuff growing in it and you just go, oh, that's horrible. But we deceive ourselves to think that it's any less dangerous to drink that than to drink something where the pollutant is there and we don't see it. The bacteria may be even more virulent and what we need to understand is the only way to purify the water is from without. There's nothing within that jar that can purify itself. Purification has to come from the outside in. And that's essentially what the, what the Bible is saying to us. Because simply knowing the Scriptures won't purify us, Paul was saying. So what is the purpose of the Scripture? Why did he give it? And that's where he continues to explain Basically, he tells us three things that define the purpose of the Word of God in our life. He says again in verse 19, for we know, now we know that whatever the law says, and we might substitute there anything the Bible says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Let me address those three things in reverse order. The number one, he says that Scripture is to make us conscious of sin. The word that's used there, conscious, is the word epigenosis. It means a, a, a precise and a correct kind of knowledge. It clarifies right and wrong, good and evil, truth and falsehood. We live in an age where people are confused about what's right and wrong, what's good and evil. And, and, and part of it is that they've removed the Word of God from the culture and from the common parlance of conversation. People have become confused about what is right. Even the church becomes confused. So that when I read these reports of who evangelical Christians are voting for in the primaries, and I think to myself, do these people not know the Scriptures? And the answer is, well, yeah, they don't. Actually, only about 9% of people who profess to be Bible-believing, born-again Christians actually know what the Bible says on eight major fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. Only 9%. So, what does the Bible do? It makes us aware and it clarifies for us what is right and what is wrong. Now, that's viewed as being judgmental and, 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 and condemning and all that sort of stuff, but simply knowing that something is wrong isn't judgment. But in fact, the judgment is the consequences that God says will definitely come when you ignore what I say is wrong. 
when my wife and I are driving together someplace, she has found it, it's her responsibility and duty to remind me of changes in the speed limit. Because I don't know what it is. There's, there's something, I have a visual problem of some kind. I'm just not conscious of those changes. And she's always reminded that it dropped down to 55 now. And so, you know, I just let off the, have to have dropped from 90 down all the way to, you know. It's, these are little things that we have to keep in mind because I know those upward limits are only suggestions. They're not really something that they're going to follow. But it, it's one of those kind of things you realize that, uh, if you don't see it, you don't are conscious of it, you just go blowing right by it. It feels okay. I'll never forget a, a salesman friend of mine who sold Mercedes, and he was telling me he took this lady out to have her test drive a, one, of his new, one of their new sports cars, and, and he says, man, the thing was so smooth, and it just kind of, you didn't even realize how fast you were going. And so here we are, she's test driving it, and she gets a ticket doing 60 and a 35, not even realizing how fast she was going. And because she was a client, he said, I had to pay her ticket. But nonetheless, and she didn't buy the car either. But anyway, <laughs> but that kind of happens. We, we kind of blow through life sometimes not realizing it. And I remember that experience when I first began to read the Bible. And I just had this moment over and over again of, oh, stink. Oh, stink. Oh, stink. I am in so much trouble. I am in deep weeds here. I began to see all these things that I had no idea that God cared about. It makes me conscious. It makes you and I conscious. In fact, Paul says in Romans 7, 7, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said to me, do not covet. In other words, that, that envious, jealous, desiring of something that isn't for you, you, isn't yours, hasn't been given to you, God, by, isn't intended to you, whether it be a person or a thing, to realize that that's wrong comes to us because God says, don't do that. That's wrong. And it makes me aware. But secondly, he says, not only does the law make me conscious of my sin, but it holds me accountable. It says, in fact, it says the whole world is accountable. The Greek word here literally means someone who has lost his case and is under judgment. In other words, it's not like God saying, well, you know, you're going to get to heaven and then I'm going to try you. No, he's already determined you're guilty. <laughs> it's not something you've got to wait to find out. It may be news to you, but not to him. Jesus said, he said, whoever does not believe stands condemned already. He says, I didn't come to condemn the world. The world is already condemned. I came to save it, but the judgment has already been passed. The verdict is already in. You are guilty of sin against the God of the universe. He didn't come to simply point it out, but he came to reveal it to you so that you might turn to him and receive grace and forgiveness. It's interesting when Jesus would explain to the 12 about the role of the Holy Spirit that would come and indwell them and empower them for ministry. And the very first thing he said is, when the Holy Spirit, when the Comforter comes, he will convict the world of sin. I always thought that's kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? The Comforter will convict. Now, I've never found conviction to being all that comforting until I realized that you can't feel conviction if you don't have the Holy Spirit. Amen. When I got the Holy Spirit in my life, I started feeling its presence. 
Things that used to be just simple, no-brainers for me, suddenly became causes of conflict and existential crisis. Yeah. I just remember that when I was in college and a young lady comes up to me and says, I don't have any place to stay and can I, can I sleep over at your place? And I looked at that moment and I thought, no. Why did I do that? Because I just started reading the Bible. And there are certain things that God said, you shall not do this. You understand that these, this has an effect upon your life. Saying no to those kind of moments are not the easiest thing to do. But they're the right thing and they usually turn out to make life easier. I found that the easy choices often make life extremely complicated and difficult and painful and heartbreaking. Which brings me to the third thing he says. The law also comes so that every mouth may be silenced. You know, a literal loose translation of that word silence is shut up. Shut your trap. To be hushed, or as one translator put it, no more excuses. That there's no, it, it's a final word that says no more excuses, no more saying, well, you have to understand that under the circumstances, and if you were in my place, and if this had happened, and if that hadn't happened, and if you hadn't have done this, and all those kinds of things. Can I meddle here a moment? You see, some of you are not excited that this is Valentine's Day because you have an expectation that you're pretty sure that the other person in your life isn't going to live up to. And you're using that as an excuse to be unloving. And what the Bible does is it, it strips away the excuses. And it makes me face the fact that I'm to love regardless. You listening, honey? <laughs> 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 Such a cheap shot. <laughs> do you understand, though, what I'm saying? And it doesn't matter just on Valentine's Day. or any, We do this throughout our life. We, we excuse. I had this terrible conversation with someone recently where they were just full of vitriol towards, I mean, such hatred towards another person. And all I could simply say to him is, yet, but the Bible says that we must forgive. We must forgive. Well, I know it does. I know it does, but I just can't. Well, can't or shan't or won't or don't. I don't care. But that's what we must do. We don't, we don't have an option. You have to make that the bottom line to your life because that's what God says. You must. Amen. Thankfully, that person worked through that. But it was, it's so easy. There, he says, basically, we stop making excuses. This becomes the definer. It's not surprising that people want to play fast and loose with the Bible. Well, that was then, and I'm not sure about the translation, and I'm not, you know, we go through this whole kind of crazy conversations. At the end of the day, it says what it says, it means what it says, and the issue is, are we going to keep his commandments or not? Amen. And when we don't, are we going to admit that we didn't? And we stop arguing with God about it. 
I love Peterson's rendering of this last passage. He's very, very pedestrian. He says, we're sinners, every one of us. We're all in the same sinking boat with everybody else. And I would add, without a paddle, without a pole, <laughs> we're all in the same sinking boat. The motor's out of gas. We're all in this together. So that knowledge of the Bible doesn't excuse my sin. It forces me to admit it. Because knowledge alone cannot save me. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, or you're religious or you're irreligious, you're moral or you're immoral person, it's all the same. We're all in the same sinking boat. But what can fix the problem? What can address it? What can purify that jar of water is letting what's without to come within. Paul said of himself in seven, Romans 7, 18, he says, nothing good lives in me, that is in my sinful nature. So that in a way, what he's telling us is we have to first embrace the bad news about ourselves before we can ever become open to the good news of God's grace. You see, the more conscious you are of your own sin, the closer you are to the grace of God. Amen. And the closer you are to God's grace, the closer you, in fact, are to God in experience. The less conscious you are of your sinfulness, the further you are from God. Here's what's tough. That's counterintuitive. That's counterintuitive to our nature. I mean, the way we think about it is the less I see sin in my life, uh, the closer I am to God and the better I'll feel about myself. And I discovered that the brighter the light and the higher the magnification, the more I realize I'm growing old much quicker than I want to admit when I was staying, visiting my, my son and his wife and kids, and <clears throat> the bathroom, had one of the lights bulbs was burned out, and that worked for me. <laughs> you know, I, I just thought, I still got that bloom of youth. <laughs> okay, it's a toxic bloom, but nonetheless, I still have this bloom. But you know, when you get home and you get under those highly radiated lights and that magnifying mirror where you can see every pore, you begin to try to find where online those do-it-yourself-at-home Botox kits, you know. <laughs> Maybe I can inject it in my temples and it'll change me, you know. But it's, it's, it's the flaws and the imperfections. That's one of the things I have against HDTV. I used to watch a movie and the, the actors and actresses look so, so handsome and so flawless and now they're as flawed as the rest of us. The, the illusion is off. Well, what am I trying to say? I don't know why I lost the point 10 minutes ago. No, I hope you understand what I'm trying to say is that the closer you draw to him and the more glorious he becomes in your light, the more you recognize that you are a sinner and you're saved by grace and grace alone. Amen. That you don't, have the, you don't deserve to stand in his presence but he nonetheless has chosen to allow you to do so. That your garments are, are stained, he replaced them with his righteousness. 
To truly grasp us not only changes how we feel about ourselves, we can let the facade down, we can relax, we can just begin to enjoy the fact that I'm a sinner saved by grace. I don't enjoy the fact that I'm a sinner, but I enjoy the fact that I'm saved by grace. And I live in that reality, and I walk in that reality, and suddenly I find myself interacting with people on that same basis, that you're not okay, and I'm not okay, but that's okay. It's okay. Because God forgives sinners of whom I am chief. Father God, I pray that we could really, truly, deeply, meaningfully, life transformationally understand this idea of your overwhelming grace. Forgive us, Lord, if we use your grace as an excuse for bad behavior or bad attitudes and the rest, Lord. We know that's wrong. We know that's not what you meant. You said by our fruit you will know them. And God, it's the outflow of our life. It's our actions that really tell what's really true on the inside. But keep us from that deception of thinking that we can just put on a moral uniform and that makes us moral people. Deliver us from that evil of thinking that somehow we are better than anybody. That we look at somebody's jar and it's overgrown with mold and dark and putrefied and the, take the lid off their life and just a stench comes out and somehow we look at them as if they're less than us. And not realizing that you are such a powerful purifier that you can purify them in an instant, just as you purified us in an instant, God. Give us a clear sense of this, Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As we continue together in a short time of reflection and response to God, I just want to encourage you to <clears throat> let the Holy Spirit take your thoughts where He knows they need to go that I suspect that if God's Spirit has wrestled with you this morning on any level, that that, that wrestling needs to continue on for at least a, another short season, that it might begin to uh, take root in your life and be the beginning of some whole new way of approaching the world out there. Maybe even approaching the world in here. But I urge you to, to do that, that whether that will come through just joining in the singing of songs, whether it comes in a time of quiet prayer and reflection, whether it comes in asking others to pray with you, even those of us who will be up here in front, that we'd be more glad to pray with you, especially if, if you've never given your life to Jesus or maybe you once had a relationship, once you knew him, but now you're far away from him and you're lost. We'd be glad to just talk with you about that, pray with you. But as we partake of the elements as part of our time together, it's an opportunity for us to objectively express the fact that we realize that we stand here today before God, that we know that we are destined for eternity with Christ because of His body and His blood, not because of my body or my blood or sweat and tears. It's what He did for us not what we have done for ourselves or for him or anybody else.